From Nevada to Wisconsin, Washington to Florida, this is American Radio Journal. On this edition, the failure of Silicon Valley Bank has rattled both the banking industry and the equity markets. Patrick Horan from the Mercatus Center at George Mason University is here with details. Senator Dianne Feinstein is retiring, triggering a hotly contested primary for her California Senate seat. Scott Parkinson from the Club for Growth has the real story. As the federal budget process gets underway, U.S. Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia is warning both parties that something must be done about the skyrocketing federal deficit. Eric Baim of Reason Magazine reports. And Hollywood recently celebrated with the awarding of this year's Oscars, but on his American Radio Journal commentary, Dr. Paul Kengor from the Institute for Faith and Freedom at Grove City College laments the slow death of movie theaters. I'm Loman Henry, and welcome to American Radio Journal. It is the second largest bank failure in American history, and the demise of Silicon Valley Bank has shaken the banking system, called Federal Reserve policy into question, and created volatility in the equity markets. Patrick Horan is a research fellow focusing on monetary policy and the Federal Reserve System at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. He is here to unpack all that has happened. Pat, welcome to American Radio Journal. Patrick, as the average American who has maybe a little bit of money in their their local bank takes a look at the failure of Silicon Valley Bank and some other banks this past week, should they have a concern about the safety of their money and the integrity of the banking system? Right now, as we're recording this interview, I would say no. Most people, they have money in their bank, and those bank accounts are insured by what's called the FDIC, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. And the FDIC insures bank deposits up to $250,000. So most average Americans don't have that much money in bank accounts. And the FDIC has a very good record in insuring accounts up to the amount it says it will. So no, in the immediate short term, Americans should not be worried that their money isn't safe. They, they They can relax that their money is safe right now. Over the weekend, there was a concern that Silicon Valley Bank will lead to a bigger crisis, that there will be a full-blown financial crisis on the horizon. It doesn't seem like that's the case right now. The Federal Reserve, the Federal Reserve and the FDIC stepped in to make sure that depositors at that bank would have their money. So the bank itself is going under, but the depositors are still getting their money, even those who have money in excess of the $250,000 limit. So it doesn't seem like Silicon Valley Bank, the crisis there is going to spread to the financial system as a whole, at least not right now. Silicon Valley Bank, the failure, Pat, is the second largest bank failure in banking history. What happened there with that bank that caused it to fail? And is it a unique case with them? We're still seeing developments take place. I would right now I would say that the situation is under control. I mean that could change. So Silicon Valley Bank was a unusual bank in the sense that it's a relatively new bank. It's been around for a while, but they're focused on Silicon Valley and the tech sector. And it seems like they made decisions that were not not that wise. The the short story is is that so Silicon Valley did what banks normally do, and that is they borrow short and they lend long. And the reason you do that is because short-term interest rates tend to be lower than long-term interest rates. So you borrow short and you lend long, that's, and that's how you typically make profits. 
And that makes sense because presumably it's less risky to pay back a short-term loan than a long-term loan. However, over the past year, we've seen short-term interest rates go up a lot because the Federal Reserve is raising its target interest rates to rein in inflation. So short-term interest rates have been going up a lot, much more than long-term interest rates. So now that's creating a lot of problems, though, for Silicon Valley Bank because they've been borrowing short and lending long. And when interest rates rise, the price of bonds falls. Silicon Valley Bank had to pay its depositors, but it only had so much cash on hand. And when it ran out of that, it then turned towards selling the assets it had. Now, those are the bonds it has, but those bonds have fallen in price. And that's why Silicon Valley Bank ran out of money so quickly. So Silicon Valley Bank was doing a thing that banks normally do, that's borrow short, lend long. However, they didn't do a good job of mitigating that risk because the interest rate risk is a problem that banks should be aware of, and they can take measures to mitigate that. There's a few things they can do. They can diversify their portfolio uh, in certain ways. They, They can trade what are called interest rate swaps. The Silicon Valley Bank was not doing was not doing a good job at that, and that's what made them especially fragile and and prone to a, a bank run, which is what happened. The banking industry, of course, is very highly regulated. And taking into account what you just said, is this a failure of regulators or regulations that allowed this to occur? Why wasn't it caught by federal regulators? That's a great question, and we're still learning more. One argument out there is that regulators should have been more aware of the fact that Silicon Valley Bank had a lot of deposits that were in excess of the $250,000 limit. So that means there are a lot of uninsured deposits. And those deposits are more risk-prone because depositors are aware, oh, I mean, I've got all my money if something something bad happens to this bank. That's why they took their deposits out. The Federal Reserve, of course, has been raising interest rates at a relatively rapid pace, actually, at sort of a historically rapid pace here. That did play a role. But what does this do now to Fed policy going forward? They've been raising interest rates in an effort to rein in inflation, which has yet to be reined in. Does this sort of cause the playbook for reining in inflation to be thrown out the window? I wouldn't necessarily say throw the playbook out the window entirely. However, things are a lot murkier. Now, you're right. The Fed has been raising rates dramatically since last year in order to rein in inflation. And this illustrates the problem of letting inflation get out of control in the first place. I would chalk this up to too much monetary and fiscal stimulus back in 2021. Back in 2021, the economy was already recovering from the COVID-19 pandemic, not 100%, but mostly. But the Federal Reserve still decided to keep interest rates very low and was saying it's far, it's, it's not going to raise interest rates anytime soon. Fiscal policy was also very accommodative with extra rounds of stimulus checks. And even as inflation started to creep up, the Fed was very slow to raise interest rates until inflation got to be very high last year in 2022. And then it realized inflation was getting out of hand. So it raised interest rates dramatically beginning last spring and summer through the fall. And we're still waiting to see what effects those interest rate hikes are going to have on the great, on the broader economy. The Federal Reserve made a lot of errors in the past, but those errors are you can't do anything about that. So now you have to want, now you have to ask yourself, what should we do now, or what should the Fed do now? Now the Fed's goal is to bring inflation down to two percent. That's its target. But inflation still above that. It was closer to six percent based on the last the latest CPI, which came out last week. Now, so that means it's not done. So the question is, do you keep raising interest rates 
in order to bring inflation down further, or do you not? And that's the million-dollar question, or it's really a trillion-dollar question. I would say that the Fed still needs to make sure inflation falls down to target. It may not necessarily need to rely on interest rate hikes as much to accomplish that goal. So we've already started to see inflation fall. It's still way above the target, but it's trending in the right direction. So I, I suspect the Fed will raise its interest rate target again, 25 basis points next week. It's less clear what they're going to do after that because it's not clear what they should do after that because it's not clear what ramifications the Silicon Valley Bank crisis is going to have on the broader economy by then. We just don't know enough to make to have a good idea of what the Fed will be doing beyond this month. What impact does all this have on the equity market? Seems like we've had some wild swings here over the past week or so. It's hard to tell how the stock market is going to play out over the foreseeable future. In general, stocks don't like inflation because that means further interest rates are coming along. Now, if inflation trends lower, though, then that might mean the Fed may not have to raise interest rates as much. So stocks will, or equity markets will take solace in that. So that could be good news for equity. It's really hard to tell right now because we don't know the extent to which there's still a lot of stress in financial markets right now. And we still don't know how that's going to play out. We have been talking with Patrick Horan, who is a research fellow focusing on monetary policy and the Federal Reserve System at the Mercatus Center, which, of course, is located at George Mason University. Pat, tell us a little bit about the Mercatus Center. Also, where can folks go online to learn more? The Mercatus Center is a university-based research center at George Mason University in Virginia. The Mercatus Center uh, works to bridge the gap between academia and real-world problems. So we use market-oriented ideas that are grounded in economic theory to, uh, to come up with good solutions to real-world problems. And while I work on monetary policy, we also do work, my colleagues and I do, my other colleagues work on issues like housing policy, regulation. You can find us at mercatus.org. Patrick Horan from the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Patrick, thank you for taking time to be with us. Thanks so much for having me. Scott Parkinson at the Club for Growth. He, too, has been keeping an eye on all of the fallout from the Silicon Valley bank failure. We also have some political developments to look at around the country. Scott, good to have you back with us. Thanks for having me back, Loman. Of course, as we just heard, the failure of uh, Silicon Valley Bank has had ramifications in the banking industry. It's had ramifications in the equity markets at the Fed. I would assume there might be some fallout on Capitol Hill as well. Yeah, I think a lot of people on Capitol Hill are starting to look to how we got to where we got to and how quickly we got there. What I mean by that is we're obviously facing historic inflation And you've seen all these big interest rate increases at the Federal Reserve. You've seen the administration and the Fed Reserve encouraging banks to take on long-term treasury bonds. And there were some financial institutions like Silicon Valley Bank that that created real exposure to because they didn't have the proper risk assessment internally and understand that they were about to go belly up. And so obviously... With Silicon Valley Bank in California and Signature Bank in New York, those are two instances we obviously want to prevent additional financial collapse like we've seen in 2009 that, that really devastated the U.S. economy. But I think it's worth pointing out, Loman, that the economic situation that we've pretty much endured since the beginning of the coronavirus pandemic and into 
the Biden administration is a causation of uh, what happened last week with the financial system out west and, and in the Northeast. You know, obviously, this is it's limited, but the steps that the Treasury Department and the FDIC are taking to guarantee deposits beyond this $250,000 limit, it's got to make a lot of people say, well, they're actually just protecting the rich and the wealthy, and they're never looking out for the middle class. If this is all money that's being guaranteed to depositors through the, the different bank fees that happen, what do you think bank fees come from, right? That's a, a taxation, a, a fee that's collected on consumers and customers of that bank. And so when that's a shared risk, we obviously have folks in South Carolina and Kansas at smaller banks that are ultimately helping guarantee those depositors in Silicon Valley. And you, know, you also have to look at the policies that some of these financial institutions were really trying to cater to. And I, I would point out the politically correct ESG focus and pronouns and all the stuff that's been out there. We've all read about uh, from from Signature Bank's chairman as well as the folks over there at, at Silicon Valley Bank. Uh, that should be an alarm that goes off for people because we know that ESG is the type of investment that brings investors even less money than they would have otherwise. Uh, they're not smart investments, and the wokeism trickling down into our financial markets can create real concern for a lot of investors. It's interesting, Scott. Anytime woke hits reality, reality tends to win, and we've seen that here. Speaking of reality, uh, Senator Dianne Feinstein finally came to the conclusion that her time in the Senate, U.S. Senate, is up, and we're going to have an open U.S. Senate seat in the state of California, pretty much fought out on the Democrat side, right? Yeah, I think there's going to be several strong Democrats that give that thing a go. We, we obviously have a few that have already announced, including Shifty Adam Schiff and Congresswoman Lee. Nonetheless, California is a big, expensive race, and hopefully the Democrats have to use real resources there to get through their primary and their nominating process. But throughout the rest of the country, there's a real opportunity for Republicans to flip the Senate, which is currently standing at 49.51. We know that Dianne Feinstein and, and John Fetterman have, have been sidelined with their own health issues, and obviously Leader McConnell uh, suffered a concussion and a broken rib recently in a fall in Washington, D.C., so he's been missing from the Senate as well. But nonetheless, we know that it's always really tight here in Washington, and we've got real opportunities uh, from states, again, like Arizona, and Michigan and Wisconsin and Ohio, Pennsylvania and Nevada. You know, these are big states where we're going to have real credible candidates taking on dim incumbents and hopefully turning the United States Senate from blue to red. Taking a look then at that electoral map, let's go up 10,000 feet here, Scott. The Senate, of course, just about evenly divided 5149. Looking at the seats that are up in 2024, does it advantage one party over the other? Well, Republicans are only having to defend, I think, 11 seats this cycle. And so that really puts us in, in the driver's seat in terms of going on offense and having the ability to hammer Democrats in more and more states and, and flip, flip races. We've got West Virginia, Montana, and Ohio as three 
dim incumbent senators, so Joe Manchin, John Tester, and Sherrod Brown, that are real vulnerable to Republican candidates. The big issue in Ohio is who's the Republican nominee going to be, right? That, that primary is probably wide open right now. Uh, down in West Virginia, Congressman Alex Mooney has already made his announcement and uh, is in the race. Governor Jim Justice is taking a look at whether he'd run. Club for Growth has been uh, crystal clear that we would support Mooney over Justice uh, through Club for Growth Action and Club for Growth PAC. There's also Patrick Morrissey that's, I think, making a decision between the United States Senate race and the governor's race in West Virginia. And then up in Montana, you've got several candidates that are taking a look at it to take on John Tester. Do you see an issue or issues that Republican candidates are going to need to really stress and and dominate the campaign? We have to focus on a movement to save the middle class. The middle class is under direct assault right now from the radical left that wants to hijack free market capitalism and replace it with this radical socialist vision of cultural Marxism and an economy that robs Peter to pay Paul. The shared common good vision of socialism in America right now that's being proposed by the radical left is, I think, destroying wealth in America. We're going to continue to track those issues and those races with Scott Parkinson from the Club for Growth. Scott, tell us a bit about the club. Well, Club for Growth is a membership organization based out of Washington, D.C. Check us out at clubforgrowth.org. You can also sign up and join over 525,000 other Americans in becoming a member for free. Scott Parkinson at the Club for Growth. Scott, thank you again for being here. Thank you. Federal spending and the national debt exploded during the COVID-19 pandemic and now must be reined in. But does Congress have the will to do so? Eric Baim of Reason Magazine explores. During the first two years of the Biden administration, Senator Joe Manchin often ended up having to be the responsible adult in the room. Now he is once again telling both Democrats and Republicans something they don't want to hear, but it's exactly what they need to start talking about. Hi, folks. I'm Eric Bain with Reason Magazine. Thanks for joining us on this edition of American Radio Journal. This week, we're talking about how Democrats had full control of Congress for the first time in over a decade over the past two years. And many of them used the opportunity to behave like children left alone in a candy store. Each pile of sugary goodness they consumed just provided energy to eat another and another and another. Manchin was the parental buzzkill in many of those situations. He would pop up every few months to remind his fellow Democrats that no, more federal spending actually won't fix runaway inflation, or to point out that budget deficits do still matter. Sometimes he had to remind them that you can't tax money that doesn't exist. Because yes, Democrats were actually trying to tax money that doesn't exist. They wanted to tax unrealized gains. Now control of Congress is divided between the two parties, so you would think that Manchin wouldn't have as important of a role to play in terms of stopping some of those really bad ideas. But the senator from West Virginia seems determined to keep delivering reminders to his fellow lawmakers that they've got to eat their vegetables once in a while. In an interview earlier this month with Fox Business host Neil Cavuto, Manchin stressed the need to put Social Security and other federal entitlement programs on a more stable footing in light of the fact that Social Security benefits will be automatically cut when the program's trust fund hits insolvency in or around 2034, just about a decade from now. If we do nothing, Manchin said, and we sit back with our hands in our pockets and say, oh, we can't get involved, there will be automatic cuts. 
And that is a reality that many top Republicans and Democrats simply refuse to acknowledge right now. Both President Joe Biden and former President Donald Trump have promised not to touch Social Security. Top Republicans, including Kevin McCarthy in the House, have said that they will not put any sort of negotiations over Social Security into the ongoing discussions about the debt ceiling crisis. But Manchin is absolutely right here. Anyone who argues for leaving the entitlement programs fully untouched today is actually advocating for automatic, unavoidable benefit cuts in about a decade. That's a situation that should be spurring more conversations in Washington about the future of Social Security. But Manchin is one of the few lawmakers willing to even raise that question. And the unwillingness to talk about the problem is a major impediment to finding solutions. And in fact, there are solutions out there, or there are at least partial ones. For example, younger people would be much better off if we simply abolished Social Security so that they wouldn't have their paychecks taxed to pay for benefits that primarily flow to older and generally wealthier Americans. And with that extra money, younger workers would have more flexibility to invest as they see fit. And most private retirement accounts are more lucrative and, importantly, more sustainable than what Social Security offers. A 2016 study by the Tax Foundation found that an average worker retiring after making average wages could expect an annual payout of about $20,000 from Social Security. But if that same worker had invested just 10% of their annual earnings into a typical retirement account, they'd enjoy an annual retirement income almost three times greater. By taxing workers' earnings, you're actually limiting how much they can save for retirement on their own. Now, of course, any major change to entitlement policy is going to have trade-offs. And of course, there will need to be a period of time for winding down Social Security to ensure that older workers don't have their retirement plans suddenly blown up and that the truly needy, even among retirees, are still protected, still have some sort of safety net there. But that process should start now. Indeed, it's a process that should have started years ago. Manchin also recently took to the Senate floor to excoriate both parties for driving up the national debt to unsustainable levels. That's a related problem because the growing costs of the entitlement programs, not just Social Security, but also Medicare, are the primary drivers of the $31 trillion and growing national debt. Manchin says that we've been spending more than we bring in every year for the past 21 years, and the debt that has resulted from that is absolutely crippling. He says that it's not really a Republican problem or a Democratic problem, but an American problem. And he went on to say that we have a problem. And only if we start putting our country first and acting as Americans can we fix it. Again, Manchin is absolutely right about this. When Social Security goes insolvent, the benefit cuts, those automatic benefit cuts, won't fall just on Republican voters or Democratic ones. And the diminished standard of living that comes as a natural consequence of having too much debt is going to affect all Americans. And that will be particularly painful for people who are already living with less. Regardless of whether we're talking about the urban poor or a family in eastern Kentucky. There's simply no way to solve the debt and entitlement crises together with zero-sum politics that filter everything through this stupid binary of red versus blue. And as a result, most politicians simply choose to avoid the topic altogether because they can't score points by blaming one side or the other when both sides are to blame. And if you were a politician hoping for another all-night buffet at the candy store, well, you don't want to be told that the real choice is between boiled broccoli and steamed spinach. But... There are tough questions that Congress needs to start asking, both internally and as part of a conversation with its constituents, with real Americans. Those questions are things like, what's the purpose of Social Security? Do wealthy retirees really need federal handouts? 
If taxes have to be raised to keep entitlement programs running, what will the economic consequences of those higher taxes be? And are we okay with that? And as Manchin has recently said, are there better alternatives out there? That's maybe the most important question of all. Now, I don't trust Joe Manchin to get all these answers right. After all, he did support the Inflation Reduction Act last year, even after months of kind of standing in the way and forcing changes to the bill. But it's good that someone is asking these questions. And so I hope Manchin will keep it up. For Reason Magazine, I'm Eric Baim. Check out our coverage of Joe Biden's new budget proposal and everything else that is happening in Washington, D.C. and around the country this week at Reason.com. And catch me right back here next week on another edition of American Radio Journal. Dr. Paul Kengor from the Institute for Faith and Freedom at Grove City College laments the trend of convenience over experience when watching movies on this week's American Radio Journal commentary. Watching cinema inexorably die brings me little pleasure, writes cultural observer and film critic Lou Aguilar. I dedicated most of my life to the arts, first as an admirer, then a critic. Aguilar is a colleague of mine at the American Spectator. What inspired his lament, a piece that he dramatically titled The Darkening Light of Screen, was recent news that 39 regal theaters are closing, beyond a bunch already shut down since the parent company filed for bankruptcy. Aguilar writes, quote, Going to the movies enriched my life from infancy, as well as the cultural and social life of the country and the world for over 100 years, unquote. He's right about that. Aguilar recalls examples from his own youth. He remembers in 1979 watching Star Trek, the motion picture on the big screen, and in 1984 sitting next to the first girl he ever loved and only half viewing The Karate Kid. I'm about the age of Aguilar, and I have similar memories. I vividly remember watching Raiders of the Lost Ark in Emporium, Pennsylvania, 1981, before the old theater forever closed. More recently, I recall watching the breathtaking 2012 film adaptation of Les Miserables by Tom Hooper, the one with Hugh Jackman, Anne Hathaway, Russell Crowe. And I recall in 2004 sitting in stunned silence at the Guthrie Theater in Grove City, Pennsylvania, soaking in Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ. There is plainly no substitute for watching those films on a big screen in a theater. None. A few weeks ago, I watched First Blood the first of the Sylvester Stallone Rambo movies with two of my sons. I found myself repeatedly saying to the boys, hey, 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 I remember seeing this one in the theater. Watch what happens here. (laughs) My kids, unfortunately, are seeing movies like these for the first time on a TV set or laptop or even a phone. They're rented, streamed, whatever, channeled into a living room at best. Convenience has overtaken experience. But if you're over 50 like me, you have similar memories. Folks older still will recall watching iconic black and white films in the theater. A few years ago, my local theater did a week of classic films. I took the whole family to see It's a Wonderful Life on the big screen. They loved it. All of which brings me back to Lou Aguilar's lament. With the closing of these theaters, such experiences are vanishing. The shutting down of the Regals is a heavy hit atop the already rapidly disappearing small-town theaters, which continue to head toward extinction. I did a commentary back in September 2020 about attempts by our local historic theater, the Guthrie, to stay open amid COVID. Well, I regret to report that the young man who had stopped in and played Savior, saving the theater a couple years ago, recently had to sell it at a shockingly low price. In fact, I wish I could have bought it. Well, someone else did and converted the theater into a combination of a bar and a theater. 
Admittedly, the renovation is nicely done, but so far the TVs in the bar section are running more than movies on the big screen. I hope that the movies start up regularly again. We'll see. Lou Aguilar's lament is unfortunately sadly accurate. We're watching cinema inexorably die as the big screen darkens. To many in our modern world who can somehow watch a movie on a phone, the loss isn't so lamentable. But to me, it's sad to see. For American Radio Journal, I'm Paul Kengor. Thanks for listening. American Radio Journal is heard on public affairs-minded radio stations all across the country, including WARF-AM and WHLO-AM in North Canton, Ohio, along with WNIO-AM and WKNB-AM in Youngstown, Ohio. American Radio Journal is produced weekly by the Lincoln Institute of Public Opinion Research, Incorporated. The Lincoln Institute is completely funded through the generosity of individuals, corporations, and philanthropic foundations, which underwrite the costs of this program. Comments and opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Lincoln Institute or of this radio station. Learn more about American Radio Journal and hear expanded versions of some interviews aired on this program, please visit our website, AmericanRadioJournal.com. I'm Loman Henry. Thank you for listening to American Radio Journal. American Radio Journal, lighting the brush fires of freedom. Freedom.